Hello and welcome to the Learning Future Podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry. And today it's my absolute delight to be speaking with Professor Frank Oberclade. He is the Foundation Director of the Centre for Community Health, Child Health at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Victoria. And he's also the co-group leader of Child Health Policy, Equity and Translation at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and also an honorary professor of paediatrics at the University of Melbourne. He's a highly regarded specialist paediatrician and has an, an enormous wealth of expertise and knowledge that he brings to his work. And he's also an internationally recognized researcher, author, lecturer, and consultant, having written two books and over a couple of hundred scientific publications for good measure on all various aspects of paediatrics, but increasingly also the convergence of health and education. Uh, Frank, it's a delight to have you here today to speak with you. Thank you, Luca. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm really looking forward to our, our chat. My first question always is, what's something that you've been learning recently, Frank? I think it's something that I sort of knew, but um, it's just come to me so strongly in the last few years of the absolute central role of schools with children. Uh, I think my whole career I've spent working with teachers around assessment of children with school difficulties and mm. looking at school health. And so I've learned a lot from educators and school leadership, first of all, in the States and certainly here. But I think because of our work and particularly amplified by COVID, uh, it, it's just really struck me very powerfully just how crucial uh, a teacher's role is in the development of children, in the development of learning and self-esteem and motivation and indeed setting the foundation for what they're going to be like in the future. And I think COVID has probably uh, made lay people who may not always have appreciated the role of teachers uh, now appreciate it. Uh, mm. They've seen um, all the, uh, the challenges teachers and schools have gone through. They've just been smashed by COVID, mm. you know, school closures and home learning, and then they've had to be so nimble and so flexible. And... Uh, so many teachers have gone so out of their way to make a difference to their kids. So I hope there's a new appreciation of uh, the community, just how important teachers are. Yeah. I think also, Frank, that that piece around parents in particular during home learning, for example, which most of the world experienced, if not all of the world, this idea that we they saw how complex learning can be and that kind of pulled back the curtain on what sure. is going on in our in our schools, you know, developmental continua and, you know, different types of learning and how to st stay engaged, how to engage your kids at home, your two or three children, let alone a class of 25. And so, yeah, I think it's a beautiful reflection to to start us off. And obviously in your journey as well as, as kind of a specialist pediatrician now working and, you know, for quite a number of decades at policy level, what's the big idea that you've been exploring that you think is yeah, really interesting for us at this moment when we think about education ecosystems and the, or the health learning nexus, and however yeah. you might frame that. Yeah. I think the big shift, Luca, in the last five, 10 years has been, again, an appreciation of schools as a platform for building resilience, addressing mental health issues at an early stage. Mm. And teachers now, certainly compared to a decade ago, would say that addressing child mental health is central to their role. I think a decade ago, many teachers would have said, yeah, it's not my responsibility. I'm not a mental health specialist. I've got enough work to do. I just need to be teaching the classic academic subjects. Mm. I think now the vast majority of teachers would 
tell you that they can see the very strong link between mental health and well-being and learning. The, the two go together. Mm. It's very hard to separate. A child who's struggling at school inevitably is going to have a drop in self-esteem and anxious. And the other way around, a child mm. who's anxious and can't concentrate is going to have difficulty with learning. So mm. I think schools and teachers uh, now appreciate that in a way that perhaps they didn't uh, 10 years ago. Um, I think the other thing is that uh, a lot of the stigma around mental health generally has dissipated. Certainly in adults, you know, we see sports stars and mm. stars having a mental health break. There's a willingness now to talk about uh, that mental health and well-being in a way that certainly wasn't a while ago. I think adolescents more so, and again, that's been amplified by COVID. Child mental health for a long time, I used to describe it as the elephant in the room. Right. I've got a great slide that I use in my talks of an elephant in a room. <laughs> it's sort of right. like getting child mental health onto a policy agenda has been a real mm. struggle. Uh, Interesting. I say to people, I've got a very impressive CV of failed advocacy in child mental health. <laughs> and I think that's changed, uh, thankfully, in the last decade. I think people now do realise that children have real mental health issues. Many people know uh, the data that suggests that more than half of adult mental health problems begin before the age of 14. Mm, and there's wow. a new renewed emphasis on the importance of building resilience in kids on prevention, on early intervention. And again, schools are the ideal platform for that because everybody goes to school. It's an ideal universal platform. It's non-stigmatizing. Mm. And really importantly, we have skilled professionals observing children in multiple functions in the classroom, in the playground, with their peers. So it's the perfect platform for addressing mental health issues in schools. Mm. Frank, take take me into this into this world of how we support educators to do that. Because I know you've been you and colleagues have been working on like in a quasi-experimental cluster study. And because a lot of educators don't receive, or at least I didn't as, as an educator, receive that kind of training at school without doing kind of a student well-being or a counsellor degree alongside. So how might we use that universal platform, as you say, to try to e equip educators themselves to be better prepared for this? Do we need paraprofessionals alongside or other health experts? How do we think ecosystemically about this? What have you discovered so far, I guess, in this investigation? Well, um, well a number of things. I, I think that um, the change in attitude by teachers is really profound. They'll say, yes, they recognise child mental health is key. In the next breath, many of them will say, but I don't have the training or the expertise, I don't have mm. the time, I don't have the resources, etc." So when, we, when I looked around to see where I could make a difference in child mental health, uh, child mental health is such a, a, a broad and diverse landscape. Yeah. And again, child mental health is different from adult mental health. Adult mental health is mainly diagnose and treat. Uh, when we look at child mental health, we look at it through a much broader lens. First of all, a developmental lens, mm. but also a child and family lens, which then tells us that child mental health starts in the family and then rolls out into uh, all the places that young children make contact with, uh, with professionals, early childhood centres, kindergartens, preschools, community nurses, and so on. Uh, and, and we started at schools, as I said before, because that's the ideal platform. And we wanted to get away from another program that schools yeah. had traditionally hundreds of programs to choose from. Mm. 
<laughs> um, BU had a online directory of uh, well over 200. Mm. And there's a real mixture of good ones and poor ones and shoddy ones and snake oil ones, etc. Right. So I, I didn't want another program. I wanted something that was sustainable. And so we set around, we set about building capacity in schools. Um, that is building the capacity of teachers and the school community to be able to address mental health issues over a long period of time. So mm. we spent about nine months listening, endless cups of coffee with stakeholders, uh, people like yourself, teachers, mm. school leadership, um, educational policy people. We looked at the literature. We looked at what was happening in other areas. And um, from the outset, we sort of co-designed this. This was a model that I really didn't want people to see that was imposed from the outside. I wanted schools to own this. Yeah. And to a large extent, that's happened because their input and their co-design were so essential. So what we did was we devised a new role in schools that we call uh, the Mental Health and Wellbeing Coordinator, MHORG for short. Right. We take an experienced teacher and we train them to go into, the, into schools and play that role. So uh, we've got a very strong partnership with the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. They designed the training program for, uh, for us. It's evidence-based. It's very experiential. It draws on the teacher's own experience mm. because they're the experts. They know these kids. Yeah. They've known them for years. They observe them in the classroom. So we try to get away from this expert model and empower teachers to have the confidence um, that they, they're the expert. They know what to do. Um, and then we applied for funding to a, a prominent uh, philanthropic organisation. And then that was matched by the Department of Education and Training in Victoria. And it was interesting, during our interview with the Philanthropic Foundation, mm. I asked us again and again, why a teacher, why are we training a teacher for this new role in schools? Why not a psychologist? Because these kids have mental health problems. Mm. And the answer was twofold. One was, well, first, there aren't enough psychologists to go around. No. But secondly, we wanted uh, a teacher so they that he or she would become part of the school structure. We wanted them to be owned by the school. And the other thing is that children don't present with a stamp on their forehead saying mental health problem. Yeah. There are often associated problems like learning difficulties and social relationships that teachers have the expertise to sort of sort out. So the first year we did feasibility, a feasibility study of 10 mm -hmm. schools uh, just to see whether it would work. The feedback was, you know, really very positive. Mm. Last year we did 26 schools uh, and controls. And so we began our definitive evaluation. And I'll come back to that in a mm. moment because that was very, very positive. This year we're doing 100 schools. Wow. And a couple of months ago the Minister for Education announced a $200 million grant to roll it out to every primary school in Victoria over the next four years. Uh, Gulp, which is, you know, quite tough. <laughs> yeah. um, but the evaluation data are really interesting. And let, let me just give you some highlights that 95% yes, 90, of teachers told us they had increased confidence in dealing with mental health issues. Uh, the same percentage felt that their school's capacity to address mental health had improved significantly. Uh, during COVID, when uh, we all know that children's mental health problems went through the roof. Yeah. In our schools, they stayed the same. Oh, interesting. There was no increase. So there's some very promising wow. data. So, And I guess that gave the government the confidence then to roll it out. 
So it's very important for us to state this is not the answer. We're not saying this is the, you know, the gold standard diamond tip thing that's going to solve everybody's problems. But we know we've got something that does make a difference or it seems to make a difference. Mm. Secondly, we're trying to get away from that expert model, as I mentioned before. And so far, the feedback from mental health and wellbeing coordinators from the schools themselves, from principals, is that schools and teachers feel really empowered. Uh, and we do ongoing communities of practice where a cluster mm -hmm. of schools come together and they present to each other. Uh, and I've been the facilitator at a number of those. And honestly, I think I add 5% of value. <laughs> because they start talking about among themselves, oh, we had a child like that. Have you tried X? Oh, that's a good idea. So when we create this space and have, and we have the confidence that teachers know the answer, they just rise to the occasion. They just, I'm in awe of some of those teachers. Honestly, I am. Wow. Frank, that's so good. I love that it's now going to be a statewide approach. I mean, and how many primary schools are there in Victoria? 800. Okay, well, there you go. There you go. So it'll be from 800. What am I talking about? 1,800. 1,800. Okay. Well, there you go. Just forgot about 1,000. No, Frank, that's, I mean, what an amazing approach. And I, I guess this shows the, the power of doing a, a study like this. It provides the evidence through an innovative, like an innovation, effectively. And therefore, the confidence for our policymakers to say, well, we, we can see how powerful this this initiative is. Yeah. I would like you, Frank, just to give us a bit more of an understanding about the difference between mental health and and well-being, because often I think when we say mental health, we mean mental ill health as opposed right. to mental, you know, f flourishing. So, and I'd love you to take us into that, and even the kind of the conceptual grounding on which you've you've been supporting these educators. Um, you know, the the idea of there being a spectrum of you know between struggling, coping, and, and thriving and so love you just take us through that a little bit more because i think you've done such wonderful work yeah in conceiving that look language is a major issue luca as you know and i hate the term mental health because many people default from mental health to mental illness mm. to psychiatry to diagnosis to drugs you know we don't we don't, we don't mm. have kids on drugs and there's a huge stigma attached to it as well for and that, that's one of the differences again between mm. child mental health and adult mental health that we can speak of adult mental illness or depression or anxiety, pretty clear-cut diagnoses. But when we talk about kids, we don't talk about disorders. Mm. I, I really want to move away from that diagnostic approach. If I read anywhere in a report or hear anything, this child does not meet criteria for, you know, it'll, it just drives me nuts. So we want to get a move away from that diagnostic approach. And so often the child doesn't get services or isn't eligible for support unless he or she meets criteria for a diagnosis. So we wanted to change that whole paradigm and try and address uh, mental health, the language at the same time. So we conceived of a continuum uh, which reflects child development so much more. And I'll come back and talk about, talk about that in a moment. Mm. Um, and we spent a whole year coming up with four anchor points. We've, we've just finished that work. Um, and the four anchor points are good, coping, struggling, and overwhelmed. Four simple words. And there's a traffic light color gradient. And there's some emoji of, of a smiling face and a worried face, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we want all children to have good mental health, obviously, to, to, you know, to be well. Inevitably, because of the transitions we know in a normal part of life, uh, children 
are going to uh, have little hiccups. And we hope that they'll cope with those. And the role of parents and teachers and other adults is to help build resilience and help children cope with the vicissitudes of life. Mm. But inevitably, there are going to be children that will um, will struggle. And I, I think the role of educators and the role of parents and the role of other adults in that child's life, whether they're uh, sports coaches or whoever, is to identify those kids that are struggling and build, put scaffolding around them, support them to get them back to coping and try and avoid kids being overwhelmed where yeah. many of those will need referral, will need a diagnosis, you know, will need treatment. Mm. So that, that, that has a number of advantages. One is that moves away from diagnosis. I think it reduces stigma because I can imagine parents saying to their friends, my child is struggling rather than I'm worried that my child has an anxiety disorder or is depressed. Yeah. yeah. Um, it creates opportunities then for prevention, early intervention. It, it moves the whole pendulum more towards prevention rather than treatment. Uh, and it reduces stigma. You know, parents are m- much more likely to accept it. Teachers really like it because they don't have to try and make a diagnosis either. All they have to do is recognise this child is struggling mm-hmm. and get some advice about what to do, and often they'll know what to do. But the other exciting thing is that it works for teachers as well. You know, lots of teachers, you know, we had a research meeting this afternoon and the woman that runs our training program pointed to the, the red end of the, of the graph. She said, I'm over here today. She was overwhelmed. You know, she's got teaching responsibilities and papers to write, et cetera. But it works for families too. So that if you're a, uh, a professional whose job it is to work with families, uh, you can detect those families that are struggling. You don't need to know why. Right. But you can refer them to somebody that can sort things out. And it's interesting, when I presented this work to the CEO of one of the large philanthropics who funded the evaluation, he got it straight away. He said, yeah, I get that. He said, my father died a few few months ago and I was really struggling. Mm. But now with the passage of time, I'm coping. So it it just reflects everyday normal function. It sort of normalizes uh, children's well-being and mental health. and reflects the way they function. We all have good days, bad days. So so the other problem with diagnosis is once you label a child, he or she stays in that diagnostic box so often. Yeah, yeah. The children will move in and out of coping, struggling, back to coping, et cetera, like before an exam, for example, Mm -hmm. or if (laughs) if there's a bereavement in the family or for whatever reason, they'll struggle for a while but then move back to coping. Yes. Uh, that's the way we want it to be. So it reflects child development. So getting back to your question about mental health and well-being, I hate the term mental health. I always use it with and well-being. I see. But we've racked our brains to think of a better term and we we can't figure it out. Um, professionals sometimes use a social emotional well-being or social and emotional development, but that's sort of jargony. Mm. 10 different yeah. professionals will define that in different ways. So I think we've landed on mental health and well-being yes. but with qualifiers, with caveats, that yeah. what we want to do is to sort of normalise uh, daily behaviour. We want to mm-hmm. normalise child development. Frank, I'm just so taken by, well, the, con- the continuum I think is just such a powerful way of understanding 
learning, let alone and life, really. I mean, the idea that all of us can understand that we've many of us have coped and struggled throughout the pandemic, and I'm sure many of us have also felt overwhelmed. Absolutely. And so this idea of being able to use strategies to move us between those different spaces. And so I guess my my next question to you is how, I mean, obviously these communities of practice are functioning incredibly well across the 100 schools that are, that are operating under this model um, and frankly transforming the learning environments because there is now, I think, a, an appropriate amount of attention paid to to get jargon, the social and the emotional development alongside the cognitive development of our young people. Um, and so what kind of strategies are you, have you deployed? Like how, how have you de decided upon, you know, the kind of kernels of practice that may support, you know, particularly it sounds like to me, this is, this is not tier three or tier two intervention. This is tier one. This is for all students at all times. And therefore, also for the adults that work in these environments, because you know the connection between student well-being and staff well-being, I think is a an interesting one for us to discuss. Also, so I, I guess my question to you is, what kind of strategies are being utilised? Are you seeing? Are you, do you have? How have you determined what these coordinators can support within the communities, the learning communities? Um, we've been fairly loose on that because we, we're at pains for this not to be a top-down model. Sure. We do have a job description, but we've left to the schools themselves and the coordinators themselves details of what they're going to do day to day. We did do a job analysis uh, some uh, earlier this year, and mm -hmm. uh, there was a bit of variability, but there was not much time spent on individual consultation, which was, you know, very pleasing. We are, we conceptualised their role as threefold. One was to work with a classroom teacher to help them identify kids that were starting to struggle and to support them in dealing with just day-to-day -day classroom issues. Secondly, to be a resource for the school. And that had two components. One was to help build a whole of school approach to wellbeing. Mm. Secondly, to be a resource for the teachers themselves. If they had a child they were worried about or parents they couldn't engage, they could speak to the coordinator and get some advice. But thirdly, to be a liaison between the school and the community. Mm. Uh, so to build relationships with the referral agencies for those kids that do need support outside the school, for the kids that are overwhelmed, for the coordinator to build a directory, either formally or informally, of the various community resources that these children can be referred to. Uh, but the exact mm. way they did that, we were pretty open. Uh, mm. uh, we know there's program fidelity around the training and around the role itself, but we wanted schools to be able to adapt according to their particular needs. The other pleasing feature was the extent to which the coordinators are working in very well with welfare coordinators, with other school resources. Right. In almost all instances, anecdotally, they formed a really good team. And again, mm -hmm. Uh, met the goal that we wanted for schools, and that is to increase their capacity to deal with these particular issues. Yeah. Frank, really interesting. The, the idea of what we're tight on, what we're loose on, I think is such an interesting piece because, you know, often context is queen. And the minute you do kind of programmatize something to, you know, it loses kind of the essence of of being able to be co-authored and co-owned, I guess. And Frank, sustainability love... is an issue. The other thing that helped a lot, Luca, sorry to interrupt, is that uh, FISO. In Victoria, we've got a framework for improving school out 
school outcomes, which has been around for a long, long time and yes. tra traditionally focused on reading, writing, maths, etc., with a little bit of um, fine print around well-being. <laughs> and that was revised earlier this year to give student well-being equal weight with academic achievement. And that's, for mm. me as a non-educator, the impact of that is impossible to um, underestimate. It's just made an extraordinary difference. And wow. what's even more impressive is the reception it received by schools themselves. So the Minister for Education, who has just announced his retirement from, polit from politics, which is a terrible shame, right. uh, he conceived of it. And I had the privilege of being the only there was a sort of quote-unquote expert group, even though I hate that term. <laughs> uh, I had the privilege of working with three educators and I learned so much on the process about, uh, again, how to conceptualise that, but the importance of language. You know, we struggled for hours trying to get the right words. But So the FISO has made an enormous difference in mm. beginning to change the culture of schools around the importance of uh, children's well-being. So that... It's a radical shift in thinking, and yeah. I think it's very enlightened public policy. I think, I, well, I completely agree with you, Frank. And I think just so listeners understand what's happened here is that the kind of articulation of what schools are for has been updated to a version 2.0 in which Frank and another very esteemed colleagues, the, Professor Helen Cahill, for example, and others that also sat on, and change that conception of what success is in school to be beyond academics, to have kind of academic achievement and well-being equally weighted. And that is a transformative system articulation, I would say. And I think it's wonderful that it's happened, Frank. I really do. And I, I feel, as you say, the kind of the permission that that gives educators and school leaders in particular to go, oh, well, actually this is, we now have the permission, even though you know, we've all been trying to do this work for a long time in, in schools, clearly. it That shift, that shift in a couple of lang the language changing, I think really does unlock yeah. a broader conception of what schools are for. It becomes core business, doesn't it? Absolutely. There are two major challenges that we're seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing as well. Yeah. One is the particular needs of rural and remote schools um, for a number of number of reasons. The workforce mm. isn't there. Workforce isn't there in cities either. There are huge right. problems of access and equity. But uh, even when there are trained professionals in the local community, there's stigma. Everybody knows each other in a small school, et cetera. Mm. So they have special needs. And uh, we, we've done some feasibility around telehealth support for a, um, a community of practice of rural schools. And mm. they also face significant social problems in families. You know, every one of the cases they presented had significant family issues as well. So right. it's all very well for us to train them up in children's mental health and well-being, but many of these schools need a social worker as well. Yes. yes. I guess that's the first thing. The second is re the referral system outside the school. Uh, the community system of mental health and well-being supports and diagnosis is a mess. It's right. extraordinarily fragmented. There are workforce issues everywhere you look, shortages of pediatricians, psychologists, speech pathologists, OTs, psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. So even when the people are there, there's problems of access, six, 12-month waiting lists, wow. if you get a waiting list at all, and problems of equity. So mm -hmm. there are very few publicly funded services. So 
parents are faced with a gap, a financial gap that many of them, particularly uh, those families doing it tough, just can't meet. Mm. So I think there are two major challenges that policymakers really have to deal with. Uh, rural, remote, and access and equity to community agencies. Mm, fantastic report, Frank. I'd love us to, you know, as as we have this conversation today, and we we can engage in some foresight. You know, if we think about education transformation, which is the focus of this series, you know, and the idea actually of us bringing in a, a different understanding, an integrated understanding. Um, supporting educators around mental health and well-being with young people, being preventionist, not inter- interventionist. Where do you think the future is going? If we were to car, you know, if we were to, you were to provide a vision for tra- the transformation of an education system, you know, in 10 years time or so, what do you think it could look like based on what your own journey as a pediatrician, your, your expertise, and I will use that deliberately in early childhood in particular and your advocacy in that space, and also this convergence of bringing schools together with kind of the mental health well-being ecosystem. Wow. A small question, Frank, yeah. you know, just redesign the whole thing, you know. Redesign so, Well, look, yeah. in an ideal world, you'd have more co-location, obviously. You know, I'd love to see early childhood centres linked to schools. So because a, a transition into school for some kids, for vulnerable kids, is, is often challenging. Right. So I'd like to see a totally seamless transition from a policy point of view, from a service point of view, from a geographic point of view Mm. between early years and schools. Uh, I guess that's the first thing. And we don't have the luxury of building new facilities everywhere, but if if they can't be physically co-located, let's try and virtually co-locate them in some way. Right. So that schools develop close relationships with preschool teachers and early educators in the catchment areas where we know the kids are going to be going. I guess that's the first thing for primary teachers to learn more about early years and early years to know what's going to happen in prep and grade one, et cetera. So that becomes you know, effortless and seamless. Mm. The other thing is to reimagine a school as not just a place to teach kids, but as a community hub, as a core social centers, because most schools are open, what, nine to four or five days a week during terms. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And there's meeting facilities, sports facilities, classrooms, halls. Some of them have even better facilities. Imagine if we could somehow open that up so it would become a real focus of the whole community Mm. with after-hours classes, after-hours use of the various facilities, teaching English as a second language. You know, a million things that you could use that space for if you could overcome the fragmentation of who's in charge and, what if something goes wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Thirdly, I'd like to see more and more co-location of the sort of professionals that can support teachers and schools, speech pathologists, psychologists, pediatricians, GPs, et cetera, to make that uh, seamless as well. And again, we can't rebuild schools, but where we do have greenfield sites, where there are developing communities where there is the potential then to build a new school. Let's think outside the box. Don't build a, a traditional school. Build a school as a community hub and co-locate all those children and family services in the one place. But until we get to that uh, ideal, how can we develop a virtual one-stop shop? How can we develop these virtual services? 
And again, there's a lot of work to be done in community services around the fragmentation and improved coordination. So I think that work needs needs to be done. But I think schools can play a role in that. I think schools can help glue together some of those fragmented community agencies. So I guess my vision is of redefining a school as a community hub mm. or a you know, core social centre of that community, a gathering mm. place, a village square, if you like. Yeah, I like that. And then having a child run this seamless journey from uh, attendance at an early childhood centre into school, those kids that need it, support outside the school can be, can be referred in a totally accessible and equitable way without waiting lists, without costs, uh, to services that will support them and will support teachers. Mm. And all that to be sort of integrated in a really good policy framework. That's not Frank, too si- Sign me up, Frank. It's, I mean, I think, I think what we're seeing, it's a wonderful vision for the future. And I'm sure, you know, as an aspiring futurist, you know, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. I'm sure there are lighthouses or little sparks of these practices happening in in pockets around this country and around the world and so well, there was one happening i spent uh, quite a few years in, in boston as you know and yes it happened there uh, in the late 70s when the brookline early education system enrolled children at school in the last trimester of mother's pregnancy wow so when the mother was pregnant got to, got to third trimester went to the school and filled in all the forms. And from that moment on, the unborn unborn child started his or her education. Then from then on, there was a uh, support system, information, early learning center mm. for, those, for those young children struggling developmentally. There were professionals there to do assessments, provide early intervention. It was there four decades ago. Yeah, so it's wow. a matter of reinventing that in some way. Remembering, maybe Frank, as much as reinventing. Um, wow, wonderfully put. Yeah, this I, one thing that I realised, Frank, as a as a community principal, you know, in a in a remote setting, was you know we thought we were a K to twelve site, and then actually we realised we were pre birth to pathway, yeah. and that was a really different conception, particularly working with our um, you know child. You know, well, we had a, a CAFS nurse you know, child and family health centers. And so they would come out and support expectant mothers, you know, new fathers, new mothers, um, through a whole range of work. And yeah, really thinking about the ecosystem or the ecological model here, all the different aspects that contribute to the growth and development. Isn't that a great model? Was that sustained? Is it, does it still continue? It's a really great question. I I think it's still in play. Um, and the CAF support was instrumental for me as an educator and education leader having a health specialist there and of course yeah. this was a remote setting so we also had the clinic literally 30 meters across from the school so you know we had this relationship with our nurses as well um through the indigenous run Ngunnapa health um organization so yeah a really powerful model but the shift for me was my own mindset on what schools are for and yeah. i guess that's what you've taken us through with FISO with this wonderful work that you're also doing across soon to be 1800 schools, Frank. So it's, it's a wonderful, you know, the downside of success, but um, in all seriousness, just a wonderful piece of work. And it's great to see you pushing this uh, in there in Victoria. My final question to you, Frank, is based on everything you've shared with us and your vantage point, uh, you know, this health education nexus and policy, pediatrics, 
What's your take-home message for our listeners today? Um, I, I would like to see a, an appreciation by policymakers of just how important those years at school are. I think COVID, people like to say we sacrificed the health and well-being of children in the interests of broader society. We stopped kids going to school, for example, home learning. Mm. Some kids did well, some kids did poorly, but uh, we took the lens away from what's best for kids towards best for society. I think it's time to repay the kids. Mm. And, and I would like to see a sustained focus, not just on early years, but on those early school years as well, because that really does set the foundation for future development. And even if you don't care about kids, it, it's a compelling economic argument. <laughs> There's such strong evidence around life course that if you get those early years right, the first five, eight years of school, you set kids off on a trajectory that gives them the very best chance of ultimate success. And ultimate success for society means reduced rates of adult health problems, mental health problems, uh, gainful employment, increased productivity, more taxes, close the prisons, it just goes on and on and on. And uh, my view is you can't be exposed to that research and continue business as usual. Yeah. And my pessimism is that we've exposed policymakers to this for two decades and it's largely business as usual. Mm. So I hope really is that that'll start to change. And it's the perfect bipartisan issue that yeah. the left of politics will do this because it's the right thing to do for kids. The right side of politics that's always concerned about budgets and spending money will do it because it makes economic sense. So I think there are two uh, complementary agendas. You know, one is we should do this because it makes economic sense. It's the right thing to do. Secondly is the ethical one, knowing what kids need, mm. knowing what the risk factors are, knowing how we can address those risk factors uh, and make sure kids fulfill the potential. It's unethical not to do that. Mm. Oh, Frank. It's just so wonderful to speak with you again. And I have to say, I just continue to learn so much from our conversation. So thank you for joining us for this Learning Future podcast today. But more importantly, even though you spoke about that that fail, fail CV of advocacy, you know, the times it works, um, you're really making an impact. And so thank you for your continued and sustained effort for young people. Thank you, Luke. It's been a pleasure.